We are in our series entitled Consider Your Ways as we're going through the book of Haggai uh, through the month of June. Um, uh, before we get into our passage today, I, I want to see if anybody ha- needs a Bible, just stick your hand up. I'll have our ushers pass one out to you. Um, have a couple up here, one or two. And uh, we'll be on page 791, 791 of your pew Bible. Just keep your hands up. They should be there momentarily. Uh, Haggai is uh, a book that I'm sure that many of us aren't familiar with. It's a book that we probably kind of gloss over every once in a while. Um, and I want to applaud Jared. You had a lot of tough words up there. Darius, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, those are words that we use very often. Uh, but we, this book is uh, an action-packed book, and it's a book that is transformative. It's a small book, um, and uh, as I think of small books and, and, and how you just kind of read through it, and we sometimes don't get the full flavor of what's there, and we, don't, we fail to realize the spiritual riches that are contained in it. Many of us have been, you know, we've had Bibles for years, and we've held on to it. We don't know what's in it. It reminds me of this story that Tony Evans told once of a man named Mr. Yates who lived during the Great Depression. And this man had a farm, and like many different people within the Great Depression, he, was, uh, he, he couldn't make payments, and the bank was getting ready to foreclose on his farm, and he had three weeks uh, to come up with the money. He didn't know what to do, and, and uh, he was just quite sad and depressed uh, because his crops wouldn't grow. After a while, it was the Great Depression time. There wasn't any rain. And uh, a man approaches him and comes to his farm and asks for permission to dig on his farm. And so he agrees, he figures, what do I have to lose? And the, the guy drills down in there and comes up with this huge, I mean, he strikes oil. So much so there were 82,000 barrels a day. And this guy became a millionaire multi-times over. Now the question is, when was he a millionaire? Was he a millionaire when he struck oil? Or was he a millionaire when he bought the farm? The reality was, is he was a millionaire when he bought the farm, because, but he didn't know what laid beneath the surface. See, I believe that this book is kind of like Mr. Yates' farm. We've been sitting on it for quite some time, but we haven't drilled down into this book to see the spiritual riches that God has for each one of us and how it speaks to our life. Haggai is one of those small books that really bears down and drills into our hearts and in our souls and invites us to consider what God has for us. And, I, and as we go through this book uh, for this month, I hope that by the end of it, many of us strike oil. We, try, we strike spiritual oil and we find and discover what all that God has for us in Christ through this small little book of Haggai. So that's what we're going to look at today. What does God have for us? And God, as we go through this process, though, I have to say it's going to be a little painful. Because when you drill down to something, and especially in drilling into our hearts, it's going to hurt. It's going to cut. And God is inviting us to consider our ways as we do so. Cuts down into who we are at our very essence and consider what we're doing and what it means to follow him. But before we go any further than in that, let's pause for a moment asking God's blessing on our time together today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence asking you to speak to us. May your word find fertile soil in our hearts. And Lord, we ask, we ask and plead with you that you might drill into our hearts, our souls. Lord, remo- remove all the layers of unbelief and help us to truly discover what it is that you have for us. And Lord, we know that it's going to be a painful journey.
but we ask you to do it for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you, again, if you have your pew Bible, we're on page 791. We're going to do a bit of an overview today, and before we go any further into this book, I want to talk, um, we have to consider some things before we really delve into what this book has for us. First of all, I want us to understand as we get ready to get into this, uh, it is an Old Testament book. That means uh, it's, it doesn't have an exact one-to-one correlation as a New Testament book would. So we have to, uh, we're going to be looking at how we can take the principles of this book and apply them to our lives. So we're going to be applying some principles or deciphering these principles for us. And then we're going to decipher how we can, the purpose of this book for each one of us. How is God going to use or is using this book to speak to us who are New Testament believers? So we're going to look for some guiding principles. We're going to uh, find out the purpose that God has for us. And then we need to embrace the promises that the book has laid out for us. So these are the three things that I want us to, to think about as we're ready to jump into this book. Now, allow me to give some background. For us, some of us have been in church for a little while. Uh, others of us have not, so we aren't as familiar with the story of Haggai and where he fits within the biblical story. And we need to understand that if we're going to really fully glean these truths that God has for us within his word. Uh, first of all, we need to know that Haggai is one of the what is called the 12 minor prophets. Now, there, in, in uh, Hebrew scriptures, it's just called the 12. Now, uh, it's interesting because what he talks about is not a, a minor thing. In Haggai, we see that, that he's actually speaking about something that's major. And that's why I've entitled this message today, Majoring on a Minor. Because this minor prophet has something major to speak to each one of our lives. Now, he is a minor prophet, and that, what that means is, is that they're relatively small. It's a small book as comparison to the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel. So it is a, he's a minor prophet. There's only 38 verses in the book of Haggai. It is the shortest, uh, second shortest Old Testament book to the book of Obadiah. Now, Haggai is writing during the time where the Jews are coming back to the land. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Judaism, I'm going to give you very brief history. It starts off with a guy named Abraham. God chooses him and says, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And, and, and you're going to be a blessing. And I'm going to give you a certain land. And it passes on to his son, Isaac. It passes on to Isaac's son, this promise does. Uh, Isaac's son, he has twins, and he, uh, Jacob and Esau, and it passes to Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons who become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, as of yet, these 12 uh, tribes, or 12 men, haven't received this promised land that God had promised to their ancestor. They're nomads. They're wandering around the land of Canaan at the time. And this big famine comes. And so they are forced to go to Egypt where their brother Joseph is prime minister. And they end up moving to Egypt for a while. And there's about 75 of them. And they live there un- under the blessing of Joseph. And they, can t- they stay there for a while. And they continue to multiply. Finally, Joseph dies. A pharaoh comes into power. It doesn't know Joseph. And years and years have passed. The Israelites have multiplied and multiplied, gotten bigger and bigger. And this new leader comes into power and goes, yeah, they're a threat to us of taking over. So what are we going to do? So they put them into slavery. And they're in bondage for 400 years until they are led out by none other than, many of us know the story, of Moses. 
Moses leads them out of the promised land. Remember, as they went through the, the ten plagues, the Egyptians did, and God took Moses and led him through uh, and led the whole people through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Finally, the people got led into the promised land under the ministry and leadership of Joshua. They conquered the promised land. Eventually, they set up a monarchy, or actually more of a, it was a theocracy, and then it becomes a monarchy. Uh, king Saul comes into power, and then it comes to King David. King David has in his heart to build a temple for God. But God says, you can't build a temple because you're a man of blood. So it goes to his son, Solomon. And Solomon constructs this magnificent, beautiful temple. I mean, it is beautiful. People would come from all over the ancient world to see and behold it and to offer sacrifices. And it was, it was the center of their identity, not only just politically, but religiously. It was the hallmark. It is the seal of, of God's, and showing of God's presence in their lives. And the temple meant everything to them. But we know the story that the people, as often that they do, they get comfortable. We all do that, right? We get comfortable, we get lazy, and then we have a tendency to turn away from God. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel did. And God sent prophets to them. To warn them, repent, repent, repent. The nation ended up going into actually a civil war split into two. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom continues to go into idolatry and worshiping of false gods and all kinds of sin. So God sends the the Assyrian people against him in the year 722 B.C. And then they are taken and we we never see them again in Jewish history. I mean, in history at all. And these ten tribes disappear from history. So the the southern kingdom remains, but they haven't learned their lesson. So they keep rebelling, and God keeps sending prophets to them. And finally, God says, enough. And he sends the Babylonians against them in 587 and 586 B.C. And the Babylonians set fire to the city, destroy the walls, and destroy the temple, and then take the Jews, and they take them into what is known as the exile into Babylon, where they are to be for 70 years, which was all prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. During this time, we have individuals such as Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as Haggai and Zechariah. And after 70, year, uh, um, after 70 years, God speaks to this pagan king named Cyrus. The Babylonians have been conquered by the Medo-Persians, and this guy named Cyrus comes to the throne. And Cyrus is an interesting guy. He's a pagan king, but he's very curious about different religions. And he starts reading about Judaism, and especially the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, I think it was 400 years before, had prophesied about a coming man named Cyrus, who would come and rebuild the Jewish temple. Well, Cyrus is a little freaked out. He's like, wait a minute, that's talking about a guy with my name. Maybe that's me. So he decides to rebuild the Jewish temple. And he sends a contingency of about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And, and he wanted this temple to be rebuilt, and it would be a blessing to him and his sons. So the, the contingency goes back into the leadership of the guy Zerubbabel. All right, That's a tough one, Zerubbabel. I'll try to say that three times really fast. You're going to have a really hard time. So Zerubbabel comes back leading these people, and they rebuild the foundation of the temple. And people are celebrating, but some people are crying. Matter of fact, in the, in the Old Testament, it says that it gets so loud between the people that are crying and the people that are weeping that you can't tell the difference. I mean, and celebrating, you can't tell the difference between the two. 
Now, why were they crying? Because this temple was significantly less than Solomon's temple. It was the older generation who had seen the previous temple. They were seeing this one, and they were weeping because it was so far less than what they'd seen in Solomon's time. But the other people, who were the younger generation, had never seen it. So they're rejoicing that the temple is being rebuilt. And so they're keeping building, they're, they're building, but then problems start to happen. The project had been initiated, the foundation had been there, but then these problems occur. See, what had happened is during the time where the Israelites had been taken off of the land, these pagan kings would bring other groups that they'd conquered and make them settle on that land. So they would make them move in. Because they wanted to take them off their land because many of these kings in the ancient world believed that there were things called territorial gods. So if I took them off the land, then they couldn't connect with their god any longer, and they'd have to worship a different god. It was displacement. There wouldn't be any any my turf type of thing. So you see these guys coming back into this land, and they see that the Jews are coming back, and they don't like it. So they start riding back to the king, and by that time, Cyrus had died. There had been other kings that take his place, uh, Cambysius, and then it, it went to Darius. And Darius, is, this is all news to him, so they, the, these, these people come against him and they say, hey, this group has been known to cause trouble, don't let him build. So he does some searching and he goes, hey, you know what, they have caused a lot of trouble, don't build anymore, I don't want you to build. So they're, they're dealing with hostility outside to these people that are coming against them. The king says, stop building, and, and the, the, the working ceases. Now we know that, what, that they started up again under the leadership of Haggai and Zechariah. And then they, the, they write back to the king, and they said, do some research again. So he does, and he goes, no, wait. Cyrus did say build it. Matter of fact, we're going to fund the whole thing. So the people, though, during that time, I mean, between the time of the foundation getting laid, and then at the time the temple was actually completed was a 16-year period of time. Now, during that time, they had dealt with opposition outside, and when the building had stopped, they did so because there was just chaos going on around them. And they, so they built their own houses, and they relaxed while the temple of God laid in ruins. So God touches Haggai, and he says, Speak to these people about my temple. I want it to be rebuilt. So we see that going on. Now, we understand that this is written at a different time. So we have to apply some principles here uh, and, and to order to understand this passage. So we need to be applying some principles, guiding principles to help us interpret this book. Because it is Old Testament. Why study something in the Old Testament? Is it for us? Now, in order for us to understand that, I mean, to apply some guiding principles, as I've said before, we have to understand that it was written for, for a different time entirely. It was written at a different time, and it was written about a specific period of time in Israel's history. And he's saying to them that you need to do this because the temple is the center of identity uh, of my presence. And it's also about a literal and specific temple. When we see house of the Lord, it's not referring to our modern church buildings. That's not what it's referring to. It's the house of the Lord. We can translate that and find the principle in our day and age and understand that the principle that he's speaking to us is the making God a priority in our life and the expansion of his kingdom. So we have to understand it was written at a different time. It was written about a specific temple, but it em- employs a thing called typology. Typology. That's a little C in your notes. I think we need to follow through those. I've been kind of referencing those as we've gone. Typology. 
Now, typology, what is typology? And I want you to stay with me because we're going to get to some real applicational things. But to understand what we're doing here, uh, we need to understand what typology is. Now, typology is in any person, event, institution, or thing embedded in the Old Testament that serves as an example to something greater in the New Testament. Okay? Now, here's what I mean by that. There's a lot of things embedded in the Old Testament. And this is why you need to read the Old Testament because it helps you understand the New Testament. Did you know that Adam is a type of Jesus and that he was the head of the human race and he led the entire human race into sin? Christ is the new Adam that leads us into salvation. See, you have all of these different characters. The flood in the Old Testament, it's a type of many different things. It's an example of God's judgment. It's also an example of baptism. And it's also an example of Jesus in that man was saved... By faith in stepping into the ark, we are saved by believing in Christ. We see that just as, I mean, we see with people, Moses is also a type of Christ. Just as Moses led the Israelites out of bondage through the Red Sea, Jesus leads us out of bondage to sin. See, these things are embedded in the Old Testament that are point to point to Jesus. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was to point to Jesus to show that we couldn't save ourselves or become clean in the sight of God. Everything, I mean, most of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. Whether it was the Old Testament law, whether it was the Israelites coming uh, out, of the, out of bondage to slavery, whether it was, for example, whether it was the manna coming from heaven, To sustain the Israelites? What did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. He's saying that if you eat of me, then you'll you'll never hunger spiritually again. We also know that the Israelites were really thirsty, and Moses strikes the rock so that water would come out from it. And and Jesus said, I am the, the, the living water. I am the water of life. And so we see that, that even that rock was Christ. Moses talks about this a great deal, and so does Paul in the Scriptures. I mean, there is a great deal of typology going on. We see Paul even referencing this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 11. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. This is the Shekinah glory of God that would appear in the Old Testament. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is them coming out of the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. See, even, even the Red Sea, coming through the Red Sea, is a type of baptism. It's showing a passing out of sin into new life. See, this is typology. And it's embedded in the Old Testament or all these New Testament examples. Remember when the Israelites had been complained and God had sent serpents? And they were being bit. And so God instructs Moses to construct a a, a bronze serpent and then hold it up and all who would look at it wouldn't die but would be saved? Jesus compares that to himself and he says, when I am lifted up, all those who had been deceived by the serpent will find salvation and be healed through me. See, all of these things in the Old Testament are foreshadowing what was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And Moses writes about this, and he goes, all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven, and all drank the same spiritual drink, the water that came out of a rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and that rock was Jesus, was Christ. So this is an example of typology. He goes on, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us. 
us. See, God put forth all of those things in the Old Testament that it would speak to us now that we might be instructed from the principles therein. So the Old Testament is not totally, we don't just neglect it. God has a reason for it to speak to us through the pages and the stories of the Old Testament. So we must make sure that we don't throw the New Testament out. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, just as I mentioned before. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, we see here that this book, God has given us this book to speak to us. It's an example for us to apply to our life. Therefore, we need to read this book and say, what is God saying to us in our day and age and how we can apply the truths therein? So, we need to understand that. Now, let's, we need to be discerning and decipher the purpose of this book for us. Now, there's going to be many different purposes in the next few weeks that we're going to see as we go through this. Today's just an overview. But I want us to see that there are several different principles that God has placed this, in this book for us. First of all, we need to see that the purpose is for the community of believers. The community of believers. This isn't just for you as a solitary believer, but this is for us as a community of believers who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We can't exempt ourselves. If you can call yourself a Christian, then you have to be in the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to put an end to this right now. I've been hearing people say this. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That is the dumbest thing I think I have ever heard in my life. Because when Jesus saves you, he puts you into a body. And that's like saying your thing from the Adams family. You know the hand that just would walk around? Not connected to a body. You have to be connected to a body. The entire scripture says one another, one another, be together, one another, be with the body, one another, one another. It knows no Lone Ranger Christians. It is not just me and Jesus. It's not. The Bible does not ever say that. It is about his body, the church. He didn't just pay for you, but he paid for a people. And see, we work out our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And with you're by yourself, floating in your boat, reading your Bible all by yourself, you're not with one another. We have to be together as a body. It's a body, the church. He puts us into this body. So it's written to the community of believers. Now, this book is meant for us to check our hearts. It's a heart check time. It's, it's putting you onto the, the, uh, the, the, tread, the treadmill and hooking you up for an EKG. This is your spiritual heart check book. And God's going to lather you up and see how well your heart's going to come out. So we got to get a heart check here. Bible, this book is telling us to consider our ways. It literally, in Hebrews, means set your heart upon your ways. It's in verse 5 and it's in verse 7. Twice God says, consider your ways. Think about what I'm about to say to you and the situation that you are in your life. I want you to think about your life right now. And I want you to check and see, where do I fit into your life? 
Where do I fit into your life? Now, many of us don't like that. We don't like the idea of, of considering that because when we do, we're going to come out wanting. See, God wants us to consider our ways. And he invites the people. He says, you know what? You've harvested, but you're not, I mean, you've planted, but you're not harvested that much. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You eat, but you're not full. You drink, but your thirst isn't quenched. Why? Why? Because God basically says, because I'm against you. I'm preventing you from enjoying these gifts because you haven't delighted and given me the honor as God. So we, he invites us to do a serious heart check. And he invites us to change our priorities. God cannot be number two or number three in your life. See, many of us treat God just like he's an aside. We try to pacify him. I love what Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, he says this. It's easy to fill ourselves up with other things and then God, give God whatever is left. We do that all the time, don't we? You know, it's like the little girl who was given $2, and her mom said, you got to give one to God, and then one you can buy ice cream with after church. And she was running, and it was a windy day, and she fell, and the $2 slipped out, and, it bl- and, and they were blowing away, and she grabbed one, and she goes, oh, God, there goes your dollar. <laughs> See, that's how many of us are. We keep what our, for ourselves. See, we fill up with other things rather than in God. Things, stuff, secular pursuits, pleasures, power, sin. We fill ourselves up with other things and then give God whatever is left. Hosea 13, 6 says, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Oh, how, many, how much of that is us? You know, I, I remember the first time I ever really saw this. I saw a man in my hometown who ended up, he never went to church. He had a heart attack. And guess what he started doing after he recovered from his heart attack? He went to church. How long do you think that lasted? Not long. When he was all well? He forgot God. See, that's when we try to broker with God and barter with God. You make me better, I'll go to church. Trying to pacify God. He captures this. He goes, God gets a scrap or two only because we feel guilty for giving him nothing. A mumbled three-minute prayer at the end of the day when we are already half asleep. And he goes on. Two crumpled up dollar bills through as an after... uh, through as an after, afterthought into the church's fund for the poor, and we basically are saying, fetch God. I mean, it's God. You can't do that to God. You know, it's interesting. There was a, 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 a story of a, a, a family went home after church, and, the, and the, the, they were the pastor's family, and they were all complaining about the service. They said, oh, it was an awful Sunday today. The sound wasn't working right. The choir sounded awful. The preaching was subpar. And their dad goes, what do you expect for a quarter? When you only put so much in, that's what you get out of it. So we have to make sure that we are making change in our priorities and giving God the best of what we have. See, we even see this at the beginning of the, New, uh, of the Old Testament, in the beginning of, of history with Cain and Abel, the brothers. See, they start to call on God. And Cain takes, uh, he is working with uh, vegetation. He's a farmer. And he just takes some of his fruits and vegetables and takes them as an offering to God. But 
Abel takes the best. He's a shepherd. He takes the best of what he has and in the first, and he gives it to God as a blood sacrifice. And God is pleased with Cain, I mean, with Abel's, but he's not with Cain's. Why? Now, scholars differ on if it was because it was fruit or a blood sacrifice. I don't think that was the point because each was giving from their profession. It's the fact that he didn't give what was first and what was best, but he did. Are we giving to God what is first and best? Are we trying to pacify God? We can't. God won't allow us to. Matter of fact, he will cause us in our life not to find joy in the things that we have. It's like the man who was talking to the pastor, and he goes, Pastor, Pastor. He goes, when I was making $30,000, I was giving God just such a substantial portion of my income, and I was experiencing all these blessings. Now I'm making $150,000, and I'm giving less than I was making $30,000, and I have no joy, I have no peace, I'm not experiencing grace. Would you pray for me? The pastor goes, Lord, I pray that you make him to have $30,000 again so he could experience that joy. I mean, God is speaking to us in the United States of America, and I know many of us don't think that we are wealthy, but we are. In comparison to the rest of the world, we are. I've seen it. If you have an indoor toilet, you're doing a lot better than three-quarters of the rest of the world. We, seriously, it, you have the choice of what you ate for breakfast. You have a refrigerator. You, you have a place to do your laundry. I was interacting with a young man from Uganda when I was in India. He'd never even seen a washing machine. We were, I, I, my brother, Scott Cap was with us, and he brought his iPad, and he was showing people uh, his family and pictures. He goes, oh, this is us in front of the house, and, and, you know, there's the car. And they're like, you have two cars? You have a house? They couldn't believe it. Did you have that much stuff? And you know what? We have all this stuff, and for whatever reason, we're still not happy. Why is that? Maybe we need to simplify our lives. We need to change our priorities. And then we need to make sure that we are embracing God's promises. Embracing God's promises. Now, see, many of us think so theoretically that we can embrace God's promises. But see, God tests us to see if we will truly believe and embrace his promises. See, there's a story that illustrates this really well. It was about a man. He was in a desert. His water had run out. He was just parched. He was completely thirsty. He was quenching. I mean, he just, his tongue was starting to swell. Uh, his mouth was dry on the inside. And the sun was just beating down on him. He's sweating profusely. And, and he's, he's thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I can't make it much further. And as he continues to walk on, wondering when death is going to come, he sees in the distance a little, a little shack. So his, his mind begins to go, maybe, maybe there's water there. So he slowly makes his way to the shack, painfully putting one foot in front of the other. As his joints are starting to slow down, as the liquid is draining from his body. And he, he comes into the shack and he sees there's one of those old uh, water pumps. And attached to the water pump is a little jug. And the jug is crystal clear water. There's not a lot. But there's some. As he gets ready to pop off the jug and take a drink, he sees a little sign that says, uh, this is a pump. Attached to this pump is a jug of water. Now, you need to use this jug of water to prime this pump. 
and then you'll be able to get the water from up beneath, uh, from below, and then you can fill up the jug and leave it for somebody else. Now, he's facing a dilemma. What if the pump doesn't work? It looks old. Do I prime the pump? And if I do, I'm going to throw out all the water that I need. But if I prime this pump, will there be water come up from underneath? Now see, that's what each one of us, the test each one of us face. See, if we believe God's promises to us, and we give to God what is His, it's going to cost us something. The question that each one of us must ask ourselves is this, do we believe that there's something better for us if we give up what we have? See, God puts us in that place to test him, to see if he will provide, if we redo our priorities and give to him what is already his. Now, first of all, we have to see that this promises that he, one of the promises that he gives us is prosperity. Is prosperity. Now, I'm not using that in the term of being in, in the way of being rich. No. That's not what I'm saying. It's the idea of being of flourishing and of being satisfied with what we have. Flourishing and being satisfied with what we have. God will cause us to be prosperous. Now we have to be reminded of this, that God has given us certain abilities. They're not our own. See, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18 says this, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. He's speaking to the Jewish people and reminding them that what they have is not theirs. That God had given them abilities, and they're expected to be good stewards of it and then be generous to God. He goes on. There's other verses. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And he goes even further than that. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Think about that. Robbing God. You know, when I was a kid, I did something stupid. You ever did something stupid when you were a kid? In my hometown, we used to do a thing called, during Halloween, kids don't ever do this, but we would soap houses. Did anybody grow up in a town where you did that? On Halloween, you'd TP people's houses and you'd put soap on the windows. Well, in my hometown, I don't know why I came up with this idea, genius that I am, but I, I decided to soap the police station. Yes, your pastor is a genius. So I, I, it's a small town, and everybody knows each other. You know, it's a bad idea to soap the police station. You know why? You're going to get caught. You just are. You're not going to get away with it. And I got caught. Fortunately, the police officer was a cool guy. He just made us wash us off and laughed at us as we did it because he knew who we were. But see, you know, many of us, robbing God is like trying to rob a police station, in essence. It's a bad idea. Don't try to rob God. It's just a bad idea. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail, fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. See, the Bible talks a great deal about money and wealth. Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. It's not a fun topic to talk about, but the Bible talks a great deal about it. Why? Because our money is representative of where our heart is. Now, Tony Evans, he said this, because somebody asked the question, why do pastors always talk about money? He says, many of you think that the church only wants your money, but stop and think about this mentality for a moment. When you go to the grocery store, do you say, this store just wants my money? When you go to buy a new car, do you say, General Motors just wants my money? You don't say that about the grocer. You don't say about the dealership. You don't say that about the mall. Why? Because that's not the issue. The issue is that you need food, and the grocery store has food. The value you place on the food you need makes it legitimate for you to pay for the food you receive. You need a car so that it makes sense to buy a vehicle to get you where you need to go. You need clothes so you go to the mall in order to find what you need. In other words, it's not that these places just want your money but they are indeed providing something you absolutely need. We need God. We need spiritual help. We need spiritual light. We need training for our children. We need to know God's way. If we go to the grocery store for physical food, then we ought to be willing to come to the house of God for spiritual food without whining about it. The question is not, does the church want my money? The question is, does the church serve good food? It's a great perspective. It's a great perspective. See, God promises to bless us if we honor him. But see, many of us treat God more like we treat, like British treat the Queen of England. You know, the Queen of England is a constitutional monarch. She's not an absolute monarch. She only rules according to the Constitution, which means she has no power whatsoever. So people clamor for her. I mean, she has a palace. She has all the vestiges of, of royalty. People honor her. They curtsy or they bow. They're, they're trained in how they interact with her. But the point of the matter is she has only, she has no real authority. See, then we only give verbal recognition, not with our hearts. See, many of us treat our heavenly king that way. We say that he has authority, but our life doesn't really represent that fact. And we don't really recognize him in our hearts as the King of Kings, and as the Lord of Lords. See, we need to make sure that we are honoring Him as God, changing our priorities, and then we know that He will bless us with prosperity. You know what else He will bless us with? His, he, he will bless us with His presence. Now, I switched these in your notes, but He will bless us with His presence. You ever have someone bless you with their presence? come and see this. My kids, my kids, I, I see this in children a lot. They're like, Daddy, come here. Come and see. Come and see this. Daddy, come and see. And the greatest thing for them is when I come and I watch and I see what they're doing. And they love that. See, it's God is coming to meet with us. When we honor him as God, he will come and be in our midst and show himself to be God. We see this in the book of Haggai. Time and time again. Haggai chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. God blesses us with the power of his presence, the power of his 
presence, and we all need the presence of God. Haggai does that again in chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. In the seventh month, on the 20th, um, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. To know that God is with us. I don't know about you, but I believe that God's doing something in our church. Something that can't be manufactured. Something that is not hype. Something that is done entirely by the Spirit of God. And that's because people are praying and seeking His face and we're honoring His Word. And I think He's going to do a lot more. I see that God was using us to reach the nations, to reach this community and reach the nations. And that's all because of Him going with us as we honor Him as God. But that means us all honoring him as God. Do you hunger to see God work in your life? Are you willing to take the steps necessary and sacrifice so that he will make his name known in you? Are we as a body willing to do that? To sacrificially give ourselves to him and then experience the joy of his presence? See, God promises to prosper us. He promises us his presence. But he also promises what every single person in the world longs for. Peace. Shalom. Wholeness. Peace with God. Peace with man. And peace within ourselves. The Bible says very clearly that there is no peace for the wicked. And there will be no peace that's manufactured by man. There will be no lasting peace. As long as this world remains unredeemed, man will be at enmity toward God, and the only peace that man has will be in his, in, in some ways, will be a cooperative peace in his wickedness. He will be just delighting in wickedness, and that's why he will revolt against the followers of Christ, because they will be calling what they're doing sin. See, we will have peace with God, true peace, lasting peace. With God, when we're dwelling and being obedient to God, we'll have peace. I know that there are many of us in this room right now, we're struggling with a sin in our hearts. I mean, we all struggle with sin, I know that. But there's some of us that are really struggling with some serious disobedience in our lives, and we don't have any peace. You must lay down your arms, repent of your sins, embrace Him, and then take the steps necessary to show your repentance And then God will give you true and lasting peace. Peace with God, peace with man, and then peace with yourself. Haggai talks about this in 2, 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. 
The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, again, he's speaking about honoring God the old, for, the, for the, old, uh, the people of Israel to honor God, and God will give them peace. When we honor God, he will give us true and lasting peace, and it will be the peace of his presence, the peace of his presence. So we are invited to consider our ways. Where is God in your life? See, in first place, are you living, are you just giving verbal recognition or is your heart truly reveal or indicative of your relationship with him? What steps do you need to do before you leave today to honor him as God? Don't wait. Don't say, I'll do it later. Don't try to put God off. It doesn't work really well. God demands a decision now. 